Uh, welcome to uh, PIDE uh, podcast show. Uh, I am Abdul Jalil, uh, the Professor of Economics in Pakistan Institute of Development Economics, PIDE. Today, I have an honor uh, to have Professor Joel Mukir. Uh, professor Joel Mukir is a Professor of Economics and History in Northwestern University. Uh, professor uh, Mukir specializes in uh, economic history, the economics of technological change and the economics of population change. And uh, surely he is an authority in his field. Uh, he has honored over 100 articles and books in his field. Uh, his book have won uh, a number of important prizes, including the Joseph Schumpeter Memorial Prize. He has served as the senior editor of Journal of uh, Economic History, and he was editor-in-chief of Oxford uh, Encyclopedia of Economic History. And uh, Professor uh, Mukir has served as a president of Economic uh, History Association and the president of Midwest um, Economic Association and the president of Atlantic Economic Association and currently is a director of National Bureau of Economic Research. And uh, surely there's a long list and I cannot complete in this short span of time. Uh, professor, welcome to our show uh, and good morning. Uh, now the formally good morning, actually. <laughs> that uh, just start uh, with a warming up question, Professor. Professor, what do you think? What is uh, history and what is the history of economics? I mean, is it a union of two subjects? I mean, the history and economics are an intersection of two subjects. Uh, your thoughts, Professor? Well, I have so two answers to that. The first is that uh, the way academia is organized today, uh, the fields of economics and the fields of history are, are quite separate. I mean, I have in my university, I have an appointment in both departments and, you know, moving from one building to another, it's like you move to a different world, a different planet. I mean, people think differently, people talk differently, they have different politics. I mean, these are quite different worlds. Uh, at the same time, of course, the two fields have a very, very strong connection because almost every area that we do in economics is relevant to the past if you think about it things like feels like international trade or labor economics or the economology or macroeconomics all of those are relevant in the past because in the past people traded and in the past people worked and in the past people had governments and so everything that we do as economists is uh, you know is important if we're to studying history. And so the way I think about myself as and sort of my intellectual persona is, you know, I uh, use economics to understand history and I use history to understand economics. Uh, but what I'm particularly, of course, interested in is economic development and economic growth and technological progress, which basically made our modern world. Oh, great. Thank you. Uh, what do you consider to be the hallmark of uh, outstanding research in economic uh, history? I mean, why are you the historian, economic historian, I, I mean? Well, you know, there's, there's lots of, there's lots, lots of important issues that we as economic historians are involved in. And, and the main, you know, here, let me give you an analogy. So suppose you are a biologist, you're interested in evolution. Well, you wouldn't only be studying 
the species that exist in the world today because they are a very small sample of the species that are possible and that ever lived, right? You have to do paleontology because 99% of all the animals and all the plants that existed on this planet aren't there anymore. So if you confine yourself to studying the present, you would miss most of what's possible. The same is true in, in economics. I mean, you want to study things that no longer exist, at least not in the form that we use them. So for instance, we, we study in, the, in American economic history is the institution of slavery. No longer you know, an institution that we have, but the economics of slavery are very different from the economics of other labor markets. Um, we study the economics of migration. Now, there's still migration going on in the world, but as everybody knows, um, not everybody can enter the United States today. You have to have, you know, an, an immigration permit and so on. But until 1921, anybody could enter the United States. So the, so the population of immigrants that we were attacking is very different than what we have today. So if you want to understand things like that i mean i could make this list infinitely long obviously you know you could think about things like feudalism so you know feudalism existed in europe in the middle ages it existed in china in antiquity it existed in japan uh, we don't have feudalism in the world anymore so if you want to understand you know the economics of feudalism you have to look at the past and it's a very interesting institution that works very different than our monetized modern market economies oh great the professor, uh, there is a you know there is a huge discussion in the literature about the uh, question of rich and poor countries, and you know that uh, there was a number of researchers, for example, Lance and Robert Lucas and Charles Jones and Hmoglo, Kramer and many other they discussed in their writings, but this is the biggest unanswered question, you know. And but however, we can find the roots of this research question in the Industrial Revolution, and uh, this is your field, I think, and we yes. can safely claim that the industrial revolution has a significant place in the history of mankind and the industrial revolution departed the nation into uh, two main spheres and i mean the developed and the non-developed uh, countries uh, what do you think was the industrial revolution inevitable if and yes then why is uh, this uh, industrial revolution habit uh, happened in um, britain and why it did not happen in china india or any other part of the subcontinent and I mean, what was the recipe of the Industrial Revolution? What was missing in China and India? What do you think, Professor? Oh, man, that's a, that is a question you just asked me. You could spend a lifetime reading about and still only scratch the surface. Uh, <laughs> it's huge. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't possibly answer this in, 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 in half an hour. I've been thinking about this for many for many years and you know and i could i always quote my my old friend bob lucas you know a famous economist from the university of chicago who once wrote a memorable sentence he says once you start thinking about that question it's hard to think of anything else and so there are many there are many arguments that are being made about uh, well in a way it helps to, to first to divide it into two questions the first is the difference between Europe and the rest of the world. Okay, So the Industrial Revolution happened in Western Europe. It did not happen, as you said, in China, nor did it happen in, in India or in Africa or in the Islamic Middle East, in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, it didn't happen in Russia. 
um, it happened in Western Europe. And so the question, of course, is what is it about Western Europe that is different? And then the other question is that even within Western Europe, we see big differences. You know, we see Britain being in a position of leadership and other countries coming on board a little bit later, you know, uh, France, Germany, Austria, places like that. So, so you know, that, that, those are separate questions and they can be analyzed in uh, 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 a different way. But you know, so people have talked about, for instance, difference in geography. You know, Europe has a good, a better climate because it isn't very, very hot. It isn't very, very cold. It's sort of a temperate climate. And, you know, Montesquieu, for instance, thought that, you know, um, places in the world that are very hot would never, would never do would never do well because people were too, it, 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 things were too hot for people to work. You know, I, he may ne never have seen the Egyptian pyramids, for all I can tell. But, you know, uh, you know, uh, then there are, there's, of course, all kind of nonsense theories that I utterly reject. For instance, there is an argument that that credits Christianity that says, well, Christian Christianity is a better religion for economic development. And this is co complete nonsense, of course, because in the year 1000, you know, there was Christianity in Europe and Europe was about as backward as it gets, whereas the Middle East was flourishing in technology and science and philosophy and mathematics and medicine. And so clearly the religion itself doesn't doesn't do anything. And of course, with China, this is even more difficult because it's not even clear that China has a religion that, you know, that Chinese philosophy, that Confucianism isn't really a religion, you know, we, you know it's a philosophy, but it's not really a, a religion the way, you know, you know, Judaism or Islam are religion. So it, it, this, these are all nonsense. And then, of course, there's even the stupider theories that talk about, you know, white people having an advantage over non-white people, you know, all this is complete rubbish. What I think matters is to look at what happens in Europe in the uh, two centuries before the Industrial Revolution and see what factors were critical in preparing the ground, so to speak, you know, to plowing the soil and, and, and fertilizing it so that then with the seeds of the Industrial Revolution are planted, they will actually uh, uh, succeed. And let me, let me Maybe, maybe it would be pedagogically useful to make the following comparison. In the 11th and 12th century, China is an extremely successful economy. This is under the Song Dynasty. And they are doing many of the things that Europe ended up doing. They are producing cotton, which was, of course, very much part of the Industrial Revolution in Britain. They were producing iron. They were inventing all kinds of clever machinery that eventually found its way to, to Europe. And, you know, if you'd lived at the time and you knew the future, you would say, well, we are on the verge of an industrial revolution in China. And then oddly, of course, and, you know, under the uh, Mongol dynasty, the Yuan dynasty, and then later on under the Ming, and most remarkably under the Qing dynasties, all the way until 1912, you know, China really, you know, is stagnating. It isn't developing. And Europe is able to take the same ideas, uh, working on things like the mechanization of cotton production and so on, and turn them into something much bigger. And then the question really is, well, what exactly is different? So let me give you one suggestion, which is sort of uh, plays an important role uh, in my book. And that's the following. 
every human society in history to some extent is subject to what i call intellectual ancestor worship and what i mean by that is that people are convinced that in the past people were smarter than people are the answer to anything you go and you read the authorities and you read the so sort of the canon as it's known you the, the the books of wisdom that were given to us by our past leaders and you find the answer there so in the west for instance in may for many years the, the biggest canon at all was aristotle so if you were a you know a, a, somebody living in the middle ages and you wanted to the answer to a question about astronomy or physics then you looked you read uh, about medicine you know you read people like galen and 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 ibn sina you know i mean there were all these authorities that everybody was relying on and then you know the, the jews you know had the same kind of thing and they studied the talmud right so if you wanted to know the answer everything is in the talmud you just go and find the answer and in china you have the same thing happening you know you get the neo confucian school of zhuqi and 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 other people and you know that was all the wisdom you needed to know and so people just look at the past you know in islam it was you know obviously the quran and the hadith you know things like that now what happens in europe and this is a very, i find this an incredibly interesting phenomenon is that around 1500 so well two centuries before the industrial revolution people intellectuals start saying you know what the wisdom of the past isn't right and they become heretics and they become apost they rebel against the conventional wisdom and you can sort of see this happening already in the late 15th century but it becomes particularly remarkable in the 16 and 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 17 century when you get thinkers like say copernicus or galileo or you know descartes or in, in in very different areas of human inquiry who basically come around and say you know aristotle is wrong uh allen is wrong i mean uh, uh, you know ptolemy you know who described the world you know the, the universe as the earth is in the middle and the sun is turning around it this is all wrong and they changed to start changing the world by the end by the end of the 16th and 17th century you know say isaac newton basically describes a completely different picture of the universe but what is true for physics and what is true for astronomy what is true for medicine is even true for the humanities so all of a sudden you know, in the 17th century you start people looking at the holy bible not even the holy bible is holy you know every word in it written by god or so it was believed and then you get a man like spinoza and there were others who basically say no 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 the bible was written by people let's analyze it logically and do textual analysis and compare the different books and you know and starts making sense of it now this is in some way way i want to emphasize this would have been considered to be sacrilegious in an earlier age but in the 17th century this is happening and the question is why and let me give you an explanation of why 
it's not like Europeans where all of a sudden becoming more to tolerant, more open-minded. I mean, that would be nice to think, but that's not what happens. In fact, we all know that Galileo was put to trial. Lots of other people were. They were perse persecuted. A, f a few, not not a lot. A few people were actually executed. You know, like Giordano Bruno was was burned publicly in 1600 in Rome. You know, so a few. It did happen, but it was rare. And the question is why. And here is my answer. Uh, Europe is a coherent community of independent states. A lot of them. And so you know, some of them are fairly large, like England and France, and some of them are very small, like in Germany, you know, they've got these teeny tiny uh, uh, princedoms, and then you have the low countries, you have Switzerland, you have, I mean, it, it's very fragmented. And when you have an intellectual who is getting in trouble, with his authorities because he is making statements that are considered to be heretical, um, he always has the option of picking up his suitcases and going somewhere else. And what's more, the fact that he has this option is common knowledge, as we call it in economics. Everybody knows that everybody knows that he can do that. And so there's no point all you're going to do is get your really smartest, most creative, most interesting citizens to go and Pick, their, pick up their suitcases and go somewhere else. And in fact, a lot of them did. I can, you know, I can give you lots of examples, but always remember that, you know, Thomas Hobbes, you know, the great philosopher who wrote Leviathan, Leviathan was written in Paris, not in England, even though he was an Englishman. Because at the time, you know, England was intolerant, they didn't like him, there was a revolution going on, so he fled to Paris. <clears throat> Many other examples uh, um, are, I, I can give you how People sort of use this political fragmentation uh, in order to play the authorities against one another. Now, in China, particularly after the full final reunification of China in 1279 by Genghis Khan, uh, China remains a single empire from 1279 on all the way until today, right? And so if you got in trouble with the government, there wasn't anywhere you could go, right? And so... The market for ideas, I think, becomes more competitive in Europe, thanks to this. Whereas in China, it becomes more and more monopolized. Okay? These, you know, the Mandarin bureaucracy controls the way in which human capital is formed. Okay? And, and in fact, this was completely institutionalized by the imperial examinations, which you had to take if you wanted to work uh, for the bureaucracy, which was the sort of... Uh, uh, you know, the, the great ambition of every Chinese mother that her son would become a Mandarin. That's not what's happening in Europe. And this makes, I think, a huge difference. Let me give you one, one more example and we can move on. But, when, you know, Europe, for instance, once the printing press is invented in the middle of the 15th century, uh, I think right away after that, they invent censorship, right? So. There are books that are permitted and there are books that are not permitted because they go against, you know, the conventional wisdom and ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. Now, this, you, the problem is this censorship didn't work. And the reason it didn't work is that you were prince so-and-so and you said, I don't want this book printed in my country. It would be printed somewhere else and then smuggled into this book. You know, the, nobody was ever able to prohibit books 
from entering their country because you can't guard all the, the borders. And so you can get, you can control the printing presses in your country. You cannot. <laughs> uh, so when Galileo's books, uh, this is just one example. When Galileo's books are placed on the Inquisition's index, which the index is the list of prohibited books uh, in Italy, you can go and look the books at the library. It's printed in Basel. It's printed in Strasbourg. It's printed in Amsterdam. You, the Italians couldn't couldn't stop that, and then they're being brought back into Italy. And I think that is symbolic of the way Europe worked. And you don't have that in China, and you don't have that in the Ottoman Empire. And I think that makes for a huge difference. So what you get, basically, Abdul, is what you get is a market for ideas. People come up with ideas you know the world is the world is flat you know they, 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 the sun is in the middle of the universe no the earth people argue about this and it's like a competitive idea but people can enter there's free entry there's free exit there are incentives and in the end you know what you get is a highly competitive marketplace in which people argue uh, and they argue with evidence and they argue with mathematics and they argue with experimental data and uh, what emerges by the end of the i would say 17th early 18th century uh, is not so much a consensus about science but a consensus about how to do science and from that and, and you know and that i think is 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 is, is, is i think a, a very unique an unusual phenomenon because what ends up happening is that the ancestor worship of intellectuals, you know, is completely abandoned. Look at today, I mean, how science is, is done. We don't even study the history of science anymore. You know, how many people read Aristotle's physics? I mean, uh, historically, but you know, you know, if you go to a medical school, okay, how many people teach the history of medicine? They don't even, they only teach articles that are published in the last three years. Everything else is obsolete. So this is an extreme thing, place to be at. We have zero respect for the wisdom of uh, people living in the past. Yeah, you know, a few, a few, you know, people will read Darwin or they will read Newton or they will read, you know, some authority of the past, but mostly for entertainment. You know, if you wanted to study chemistry or molecular or astrophysics, you would pick a textbook that was published in 2021. Uh, you wouldn't publish a textbook that was published in 2015, let alone in 1700. <laughs> that, I think, so we have completely switched, but that is not the way the world used to be. The way the world used to be is you want to know something, look it up, you know, in the wisdom of our ancient uh, 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 sages. And I think that's, that's something that we have overlooked. Um, we have overlooked it because I don't think people have fully realized how committed we were to intellectual ancestor worship. You mean the apart from the wisdom, the attitude and aptitude also matters? And you define a bit what is that wisdom and attitude and aptitude? Yeah. So the attitude is what I just described, really. So that that's basically an attitude toward, you know, uh, your ancestors. There is another attitude, and then I'll talk about aptitude. But the other attitude, which I find extremely interesting 
and not easy to explain is the following. For some reason, Europeans have always been very keen on importing ideas from other civilizations. They did this even in the Middle Ages, and of course where they got most of their good ideas was from the Islamic world. And so they got friends and windmills from the Middle East, they got paper from the Middle East. Many of their, you know, the, the terms that they use, you know, come from Arabic, like algebra. These are words, you know, the AL at the beginning, of course, gives it away. So they, they, were, they were very... They were all very open about it. Remember, in Europe, we still refer to the decimal system as Arabic numerals. So basically, Europeans say, you know, the, the implicit idea is we got this from the Arabs, and that's fine. And they, you know, what do they call ceramics in English? They call it chinaware. You know, <laughs> it tells you we've got this from China. There is a technique uh, with using black lacquer called Japaning. Uh, so the, the Europeans have always been very open about this, uh, you know, the, taking things from other, other civilizations. So when they, you know, when they when when they finally find their way to the New World uh, after 1492, one of the things that they start doing is they started importing things that they, techniques and crops that they see in the New World and bring them to Europe. So potatoes and uh, maize for. To, to choose just famous two famous examples, when they reached Asia, you know, they bring tea from 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 Asia, coffee from the Arabic world. I mean, they, they bring in things from overseas, and um, this is something that most other civilizations were very re reluctant about. It's not a zero-one kind of variable in the sense that they, they always did pick up some things from Europe, especially firearms. But look, I mean, the Islamic world, for instance, places a prohibition on the printing of books, which really uh, prevents the printing of any books in Arabic or Turkish until about the middle of the 18th century. That's 300 years in which the printing book existed, the printing press existed, and they weren't printing books. China, basically, until late in the 19th century, essentially took the attitude of, if it was important, we would have already invented it. And so there's this sort of uh, reluctance to, uh, uh, to utilize ideas of other civilizations. And that's an attitude the Europeans never had. And um, we could argue why that's so, but it is, but it is, I think, an important part of the attitude. So the attitudes both toward other civilizations and towards one's own ancestors, I think, are critical in allowing a society to innovate and to grow. Now, as far as aptitude is concerned, it's a... So ideas themselves, yeah? So ideas themselves, of course, are not enough. You need to carry them out. And so I always show my, my students pictures of the wonderful inventions of Leonardo da Vinci. So Leonardo da Vinci was this sort of universal genius who invented all kinds of things, submarines and airplanes and balloons and, you know, God, God knows what. None of the things that he sketched were ever built in his time. And the answer why is very simple. Workmanship and materials. They didn't have the right materials to build the stuff with. And they... Uh, 
and they didn't have the workmanship. So, you know, I'll give you one example I, I like very much. There was a Dutchman called Cornelis Drebbel. And Cornelis Drebbel was the first man who built a submarine. And he built it, you know, with his own hands. Probably had a few people helping him, then I don't know. But he launched it actually in London, of all places, in 1620. And the king came out to sea, and there was the submarine going in the Thames. There's pictures of that. It's a wonderful thing. Okay. That's the last submarine we see in the world for, <laughs> for 250 years. Why? Because they, they you know, they, they didn't have, you need steel to make a submarine, and you need other things. And they didn't have it. And I think that is critical. You need a, 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 a cadre, a, a, a body of craftsmen, of artisans, who can actually build the thing, not once, but over and over and over again. So scale it up, so to speak. That's what industrialization involved. And, you know, and Europe really doesn't have that in 1500. I would say that if you look at the quality of artisans, and this is a bit of a speculation, if you look at the quality of artisans in the world in 1500, the artisans in India or in Persia or in China are in many ways superior to those of Europe, you know, and which is why the Europeans go there and, <laughs> and they buy stuff because they cannot make it themselves. But over time, Europeans learned by 750, I think, they are making almost everything that they were importing before from the, from the East. And much of the Industrial Revolution is in fact this form of import substitution. And eventually they get better at it. You know, you look at cotton. So the history of cotton, which has been written a couple of really good books about it lately, uh, the history of cotton is very clear. At first, the Europeans were bringing in cotton goods from India, known as calicos, among others. There were others, but, but calicos is the most famous one. And then they start making it themselves, which is what the, by 1830, they are exporting cotton goods to India. And they're wiping out the Indian cotton industry because the European could make them better and cheaper. Uh, the same is true for, for China, where the same is true for lots of other things. And so that, I think, is quite striking. The European, for a variety of reasons, developed a class of artists. And indeed, this also explains why Britain was... Listen, the overall, the quality of work, by not so much the inventors themselves, but the people actually did the work in Britain was probably the highest in the world by 1750. And uh, so you get these people like James Watt, you know, and, and, and Arkwright and the famous inventors, but what their, their success really depended on the hundreds and hundreds of unknown, but highly skilled and well-trained uh, craftsmen who built their machinery. And that's what I call aptitudes, okay? That's not that is just people who are good with their hands. You know, this is a dexterity. Obviously, you know, you need to teach these people how to do this and then give them the freedom to improve it. And that's what you see happening in all over Europe in the 18th century, but particularly in England and Scotland. Uh, professor, you were talking about the institutions and Ashmoglu um, uh, from MIT also offers some uh, institutional explanation economic growth and development and, and, and you, I know that he is your friend as well. 
and uh, and some other uh, also considers the institutions matter a lot can we relate institution with industrial revolution i mean what type of institution and why institutions are important if yes institution are important then what type of institution i mean the politics the incentives and what type of incentives i mean Yes, well, you know, this is the $64,000 question, you know, how how much did institutions how much did institutions matter? And you know, I mean, Darren and and Jim Robinson are, are very close friends of mine. <laughs> I helped them write that book. Yes, so, <laughs> so uh yeah, there was but and I think they they're making an extremely valid point, but I think they're not claiming enough. but because for them institutions are first and foremost political institutions they have to do with the state with the relationship between the ruler i don't want to call it a government you know we had to have governments in the past they had kings and they, you know uh, um and, and so what 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 they are pointing out is that you really need sort of the right kind of government in order to get um this kind of a uh, 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 phenomenon of an industrial revolution and an sort of economic growth div- driven by technology that if you have a extremely bad government that sort of taxes its people you know to the maximum and you know and, pro- and prohibits all kind of things you're not going to get this and this, this is of course so sort of not debatable but i would like to point out that there are institutions that are not uh, government related and that actually may have made as much of a difference and i'll give you one example which i make a big deal out of in my in my book so what you see happening in europe in the centuries before the industrial revolution is the emergence of an institution uh, that's international or maybe i should say transnational um, which is known at the time as the republic of letters And so they they thought of themselves as a political institution because this way they call it a republic but they weren't really a political institution in the sense that this is much more of an maybe we would call it today an, an a network it's really a virtual network of course they didn't have email or or face facebook but they had letters and they had correspondence and they had uh uh book publishing and so they they knew of each other and they were in contact with each other and the republic of letter is an institution it's an institution in the sense that it sets out rules by which knowledge is to be produced and it sets incentives and it's both the rules and the incentives that are the core of what we think of when we think of institutions isn't it and so the main incentive that scientists had and innovators had was reputation and you know the truth is we still have that you know if you look at i mean i'm lived in an academic community for 50 years and this is what people care about you know what do others in my field think of me that is the key to being to getting a job it's the key of getting tenure it's the key to getting uh, uh, promoted it's a key to becoming all kind of scientific honors you know with prizes become member of the academy or this academy or that academy and at the very peak of this of this edifice is the nobel prize right but there are lots of other prizes that people win it's you know and that creates incentives but it's all based on 
reputation. Their repu but you know, where does who creates the reputation? Well, there is a community that's not really organized in a formal way. You know, nobody has a membership card, but it's there. And uh, and uh, they determine, you know, who's successful, who's successful, who's going to be published in the top journals, who is going to get, you know, appointed to be a professor at Harvard or you know Yale or or something like. I mean, we have these rules, and that kind of system, I think, emerges in the 16th and 17th century, and you know, its history is is, is reasonably well known and educated people. And what is interesting is they set up the rules of how new knowledge is going to be produced. And I'm not going to go through all the rules, but I'll get... So one rule is basically that everything is contestable. So the contestability issue is really, you know, central. So it, no matter how famous and how important you are, somebody else can come up and criticize you, you know? And so there are no sacred cows, so to speak. And uh, that really matters. Even the great Newton himself, was, who was kind of a god in, in, in this world and clearly reached the very, I mean, he would have won Nobel Prize if there had been one at the time. But even Newton himself was criticized and, you know, people found mistakes and they said, ah, you know, I found a mistake in Newtonism. His, uh, his Principia is the optics, but never mind. Uh, but I found a mistake. Ah, wow. And so this is so contestable. And we still have that, you know. People write papers in physics and chemistry and biology and other people, you know, ha review them. And they find, if they find a mistake, they will say, say So everything is contestable. The other rule about this institution is that if you have a new idea, you don't keep it secret, but you publish it. You put it in the public realm. You share it. It's a non-rivalrous good, so the marginal cost of anybody else accessing this is, is, is very low. And so basically, if you come up with a new idea, you know, you publish it. You put it in the public in the public domain. And this is really quite, an, I think, an, import, an important innovation because we still have that today. With a few exceptions in which there are intellectual property rights, basically everybody who has a new idea, and certainly in my fields, this is the case, and it's the case all in most of science. The first thing you want to do is write a paper and send it to a journal. You want other people to know, which of course re relates to this issue of reputation that I that I talked about. Now, this is not a perfect system, Abdul. I want you to understand, this is not a perfect system. The system has many flaws. Certainly today, uh, you know, a lot of stuff that get published isn't really a new idea at all. I mean, there's a lot of rubbish being published, but that you can't avoid that. Uh, it does. It's not perfect, but it works better than anything else, and we have kept it because the modern world of science is really a product of the 16th and 17th century Republic of Letters, and uh, that's very important to keep in mind. You know that this this is an institution that mattered more than anything else. Remember, in Europe, unlike in China, technological innovation and scientific innovation are basically farmed out to the private sector. The government doesn't really do any of it. Uh, you know, there are there's no real government support for science and for technology until the 20th century. I mean, then you get things like the National Science Foundation and so on, government funding research. But 
in the period in 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 the 17th and 18th century this was all done by private individuals and the funding was of course an issue but that's how that's how it was so the government's main function particularly i think this is true in england is to get out of the way basically let the private sector do the work and and just you know give it some support but in the background but it is there are not a lot of cases uh, in which sustainable research was carried out by government um it's again it's not a binary kind of issue there are some cases in which in which you know the government clearly was successful in supporting research but in europe it was almost entirely done by the private sector until the 20th century then you get this sort of interesting cooperation between government and, and the private sector but i think those are the kind of institutional stories that we have to tell but in the 18th and 19th century remember britain which is the leading country in the industrial revolution is basically you know committed to what we call classical liberalism basically they were committed to a model of laissez faire in which the government does as little as possible the continental you know nations had somewhat different ideas but both in britain and even more so in the united states you know the government was the united states basically doesn't have much of a government until the 20th century you know the federal government does almost nothing uh, um, and so um, so that's the model i think the institutional model that turns out to be successful in the west i hasten to add abdul this is important that the fact that it's worked this way in the past does not mean that it's the only way in which you can have technological success. Uh, it is possible that there are models, and you know, the Chinese experiment will be, you know, <coughs> a test of this, that a, a, a nation in which the government plays a very central role in the production and diffusion of knowledge, that that nation can be successful have to wait and see how the Chinese experiment plays out. Uh, but uh, but certainly in the past, uh, I would say governments played, you know, all things considered, government plays a relatively more passive role. Uh, what mattered are these sort of non-governmental institutions uh, that I described earlier. Mm. What what about the elite class? Do you think that the elites uh, matter in economic history? Uh, did they help to set up institution and define the rules of the game of the economy or the industrial revolution? As you did, you say elites. Elites class, yes, elites, yes. Yeah. Well, and so I have sort of advanced a concept. Uh, which uh, this is not going to make me very popular, I think, but I think it's right. Uh, which is that essentially scientific and technological progress, and therefore the entire economic progress of society, are driven by a relatively small uh, group of people who are in the sort of upper tail of the distribution of human capital. Okay, so the top. I don't know how many percentage it really is, and that depends on what question you're asking. But basically, this is this is this is a sensitive problem because what I would argue is that what people have been writing about human capital and education and 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 knowledge have been 
uh, arguing is that we need to raise the level of education of the entire population. And you know, and I'm, I'm for that, I'm not against that. That's not what, but if you ask yourself, who are the people who are pushing the envelope? Who are people who are making society advance? It's a few, it's a small number of people. It's, you know, it's maybe 3% of the labor force. It's the engineers, it's the chemists, it's this, uh, mathematicians, you know, uh, people like physicists, people like that, you know, to, and uh, what the others know, what the rest of it, what the other 95% of the population knows may be important for some purposes, but it isn't critical to progress. And so progress in the United States, for instance, today is being, you know, if you, I'll give you a list of 20 institutions, you know, all the way from Caltech and MIT down, including my own institution, I would hope. But, you know, after you're done with 25 or 30 institutions, basically, you know, you've covered the vast bulk of where progress is being carried out. Then there's some private institutions, of course, there's some corporations, but even there, you know, the vast bulk of, of progress is carried out by their R&D departments, which employ, you know, usually a, a, a minority of all workers. So we're looking at two or three percent of the population. And it's arguable, it's arguable that a good policy for progress would be to concentrate resources on those people who bring about progress. Um, the difficulty, of course, is that you don't know who these people are. <laughs> so you need a system to identify them. I understand that. But, um, but by and large, I think what really is at the, at the pivot, at the core of, of progress of the, in, in any field that you care about, you know, people, it's, people have accused me of being elitist. And uh, I'm not this, this, this is, I'm just making, not making an elitist or non-elitist statement. I'm just saying this is a good description of how it actually happened. Now, you can make good arguments that you want people to be across the board to be well educated because it would make them better citizens, it would make them behave better, it would make them enjoy life better. I'm in favor of all that. But from the point of view of, of you know, who is going to come up with the next vaccine, COVID-19, you know, it's, 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 it's a few thousand people and we know who they are <laughs> and, and they're, they're pushing the envelope. It is not the rest of us. And that's always been like that. You know, it's always been like that. The vast bulk of the population may have been illiterate or at least poorly educated. And in a way that didn't matter. <laughs> Do you think that we are now in the midst of the third industrial revolution or the fourth industrial revolution, which is driven by the this technological developments and information and communication technology? Well, I've been asked this question many times. And of course, the easy answer is, well, that during the first industrial revolution, most people didn't know they were living during the first industrial revolution. Put on it, but later, and so, uh, so, so maybe people living through an maybe the, the the moniker of an industrial revolution should only be applied ex post. But more seriously, perhaps I think that we are living sort of almost like through a perpetual industrial revolution. That the rate of progress 
of science and technology in our own age is so fast that it would be very difficult to identify areas of periods of acceleration and deceleration. Um, what happens is, of course, the, the way uh, uh, progress is achieved differs depending on how science develops and depending on the challenges facing. So uh, it, it has been said that the 20th century was the age of physics and the 21st century will be the age of biology. And, um, and there's something to be said for that because the progress in molecular biology in different fields, you know, whether it's molecular immunology, molecular uh, virology, bacteriology and so on, that age is um, has, has opened technological horizons that we really didn't dream about even 30, 40 years ago. You think about things like the, you know, genetic editing, for instance, you know, the sort of CRISPR uh, um, a technique that was developed uh, a few years ago. And now the last few years, the newspapers have been full about, you know, uh, messenger RNA. I mean, there's been incredible progress. And so, um, but at the same time, I think we are facing by far the greatest <coughs> physical challenge that the human race has ever faced, which is uh, climate change. And this will require um, major developments in all kinds of scientific areas that will help us, you know, if not reverse it, which I think is unlikely, also who never, one never knows, but certainly adapt to it and, and, and live with it. And this will, you know, and, and I think so that that will be the next industrial revolution. How do we cope with what we have done to the planet? Um, that's going to be, you know, a, a huge issue. But I'm optimistic largely because I'm looking at what we know today, Abdul, compared to what we knew even 30 years ago, let alone 100 years ago. I mean, I've just given a lecture, I'll tell you this as an, as an aside, I've just given a lecture comparing how we responded to the coronavirus, uh, to what happened in 1918 with the great Spanish flu epidemic. And, um, it's absolutely mind-boggling. Uh, people in 1918 didn't know anything about what it was that hit them. You know, they didn't even know it was a virus, let alone that <laughs> they would be, have been capable of identifying the virus, of you know, sequencing its genome, and then coming up with ways and in, 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 in dealing with the spike protein. I mean, they wouldn't know a spike protein. They, they, they didn't know these things existed. And so we have made enormous progress in a century. A century is not a very long time in, in the history of mankind. With the progress that we've made since then is far larger than the progress that we have made, the integral of all the progress we've made since the beginning of mankind until 1918 is a teeny tiny speck compared with the progress we have made in those fields uh, in the last hundred years. And of that, most of it has been happening in the last 20 or 30 years, given that we have, you know, better instruments, better tools, you know, better microscopes, better lab techniques, and on and on and on. And so I think that in that, once you start realizing that the concept of an industrial revolution, which you have this sudden flourishing compared to what was before, uh, uh, is relevant, but it's perpetual. You are really going to live through a continuous industrial revolution in which things are going to keep improving across the board.
in biology, but also, for instance, in a big field of, 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 of manufacturing will be three-dimensional printing, it will be material science, which is closely connected to it, it will be digital technology. Now, who knows where it's going to be? We, it's, it's, nobody can predict it, but, uh, but that there will be progress, I am uh, completely certain of, because the knowledge, the base is there, the knowledge base is there, but what's more important is the incentives are there, you know? People, even today, as much as any other time in the past, the people working on the frontier of science, they want to build a reputation. They want to become celebrities. They want to be uh, uh, rock stars. You know, Dr. Fauci in the United States, he's a rock star, you know. He, <laughs> you know, you get, he, I mean, he's a celebrity. Everybody knows who he is. Uh, um, but so are other, you know, major scientists who have, you know, contributed to. You know, it gives me some kind of confidence that progress will continue ever faster. You know, I'm not going to live to see, you know, where it develops in, in, in 50 years, but I'm optimistic. In that regard, I am very optimistic. I think we will be capable of coming up with the technological tools to deal with climate change. It will be expensive, it will be painful, but we can do it because we are not as as, as, as clueless and as hapless as people were in 1918 when they were hit by the Spanish, uh, by the Spanish flu. Good. Uh, Professor, one question for in case of Pakistan. There is a phrase in Pakistan that we should think um, out of box. And now my question is that, um, according to you, uh, what what is the out of box for us? Um, uh, importantly, what is the box in, in in our case in the age of ICT and artificial intelligence? <laughs> well, I have never been in Pakistan. I've been in, in next door in India, but I've never been in Pakistan. So, if we, you know, very presumptuous of me to uh, to make deep statements about about a country where I've never been and which I have uh, never studied. But, um, yeah, I, I would say that if there's, there's two possibilities for, for, for developing economies, okay? And um, I think the most important one, I think, is not so much to think outside the box as to adapt itself to frontier, te frontier technologies that are in, that are developed elsewhere so for instance if you look at a uh, a country like uh, india or southern asia you know wh where they their successes are coming from is manufacturing uh, products and or producing services that have been developed elsewhere but doing it better and cheaper so you think about bangladesh's textile industry, India's pharmaceutical industries, things like that. So most of the things that are produced in India have been developed elsewhere and they are basically just producing generic. Also, that's no longer 100% true. They're now doing, doing, doing some developing themselves. And, you know, God bless them. I hope, I hope they succeed. But, uh, but I think that is, I think, a road to success that has been followed uh, for a much longer period by countries like Taiwan and uh, South Korea and and so on. You know, remember Taiwan and South Korea were once underdeveloped poor economies. 
And now Taiwan is the world's leading producer of microprocessors. And um, Korea is one of the main producers of, 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 of automobiles. I mean, we our country is full of Korean-made automobiles and so on and so forth. Now, that in, in all due respect to South Korea, they did not invent the automobile. They just learned to make a really good product inexpensively. And that uh, that's done a great deal of good to them. Um, now, the other model, and that's harder to follow, in the model of a country that is technologically at the frontier, that manages to elbow itself to a technological frontier. And uh, the example, of course, that comes to mind is Israel. So uh, in Israel, the saying goes, it's not that we think outside the box. They said, there is no box. And so Israel has been extremely successful in you know, not just being on the frontier, but pushing the frontier. And this is too true if you look at, you know, look at, at, at the Israeli economy. Um, it's not just been true for, for digital technology. I mean, they have developed a lot of software and a lot of hardware that is being used all over the world. But it's the same is true in, in, in biology and in medicine. I mean, they have been on the frontier of the war against COVID. And... Uh, and so, but it's true in agriculture, it's true all over the place. So it's a very creative, but in order to do that, you really do need to build a strong core of this sort of upper tail human capital, which Israel has been very good at. And they have developed techniques, uh, both for the government and both in the private sector, in which they're able to, to identify the smartest and most creative people and basically say, all right, you guys go, here's a lab, here's, 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 here's a firm, go and invent something. And they do. But that takes, you know, that takes major cultural and social transformations. And it takes a government that, 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 that realizes that. And what it takes is a, 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 a complete willingness to, uh, to engage in novel things and a willingness to put up with failure because of course when you're looking at somebody pushing the frontier uh, always keep in mind that out of 100 new ideas 99 of them are failures one will succeed but you don't know which one <laughs> so you got to do all of them in order to get to the one that actually will produce that software that will help you drive your car or that material that will protect you against, you know, uh, extreme heat and so on and so forth. And so that, I think, is the other model. So I will not go and give the government of Pakistan uh, 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 policy advice because, then we, A, I never give any good to any government, to tell you the truth, <laughs> I don't think. Well, I don't really think that I'm qualified. I don't think I'm qualified. I, you know, my, I studied the past. I try to understand the past. Uh, but my main conclusion about the present is that it's very different from the past. So what I, the lessons that I learned from the past are not in any way immediately applicable to uh, the present. You know, there are you know there's some things that you that you hope will repeat, but that is so unique and so exceptional that the way things were in the past may not be a very good key to what we should do or can do. Professor, uh, one thing, a lighter question. Uh, you know that every historian or every economic historian must have a favorite date, uh, event, or era, or a story. And what is yours? 
You're... Oh man, oh man, that's a, that's a, that's a hard one. I guess I am particularly interested in the last forty years of the 18th century. So the period between 1760 and 1800. And the reason I am interested in it, and I'll tell you, um, uh, is it, look, I mean, we have a, in, in Europe, we have a, the 18th century is often known as the age of enlightenment. And, uh, so what exactly the Enlightenment was is a long and complicated debate I'm not going to get into. But basically, one of the things that really um, well, were very much part of it, was not the only thing, but is a belief in progress. So a belief that people can, you know, improve their lives. And in, in what direction, of course, remains somewhat debated. So, for an economist, of course, the main thing would be interested, interesting would be material progress, right? So economic growth, you know, GDP, national income, industrial production, agricultural productivity, all those things. But people have meant progress in, 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 more, in more general terms. And so um, maybe scientific progress, maybe we should understand the world better. Maybe it's institutional progress. We should throw out bad governments, you know, like the, we get the French Revolution and you get, a, you know, the American Revolution. We have a bad government. We'll replace it by government that is that is better in, in some definable way. But there's a general belief that history can move in a unidirectional trend. Maybe not, you know, monotonic, maybe there are setbacks, but by and large, things are getting better. And this is something that is, in fact, fairly rare in human history. I mean, uh, uh, for most places and most societies that ever existed, uh, people believe that history moves in cycles. Uh, you know, it goes up, it goes down, it goes up and down. But as you know, the, the, the Bible says, you know, the, the generation cometh and generation goeth, and there is nothing new under uh, the sun. And uh, that's in the book of Ecclesiastes, a uh, famous sort of statement. And, you know, I think that's so, the, the, the period I'm talking about basically proves that's wrong. We, there is progress in human history, and we know more than people. Not better. People live twice as long. I mean, that's an achievement that boggles the mind. Infant mortality has gone down from, you know, some unbelievably high number, like 250 per thousand children born would die in their first year almost anywhere in the world in 1800. Today, it's like four. I mean, this is an achievement that's beyond, that, that is progress, okay? No matter how, what your beliefs, no matter what your religion, no matter what your ideology, Fewer dead children is good in every by every set of values, right? I mean, this is something we can agree on. And it's, you know, it's not just that you have fewer dead children. It's, it's also the quality of life in general. Look, I, I'm in my 70s, okay? And so, you know, look what medicine has done for me. I mean, I had cataract surgery. I can see you very clearly. I have a metal hip. I can walk very well. I mean, this is things that modern technology has done for me. So, so this is something that, that that really becomes to the 
forefront in those years, in the second half of the 18th century. You know, that's when, you know, you read a French philosopher like Condorcet, for instance, or Turgot, you know, these are the, the great minds of the late Enlightenment. And they basically say, look, things are going to get better, they can get better, and here is how to make them better. And uh, now this turned out to be a complicated thing because the Enlightenment produced not only the Industrial Revolution and the rise of democracies, it also produced Hitler and Stalin. So, you know, it's not like everything was getting better all the time. But, <clears throat> excuse me, but, uh, but things have gotten on average better and the number of people who live in poverty, it's still large, but it's a lot less large used to be. And I always tell my students, you know, that one of the real miracles of modernity is that there are lots of societies, particularly in Europe, but not only in Europe, where poverty has essentially disappeared. You know, so Jesus said, uh, the poor will always be with you in the New Testament. And um, you know, the, you, there are countries in the world in which that is really no longer true. You know, you go to Switzerland, you know, you go to Zurich, or you go to Copenhagen, or you go to Dublin, or Vienna, you don't see many poor people. You see people who are rich, you see people who are middle class, people are maybe, some people are still, you know, not not wealthy, but poverty in the sense that, that you, don't, you may not have enough to eat tomorrow, or you may not be able to afford medical care tomorrow, has disappeared in some countries. And I see that's an amazing achievement. I mean, in 1700, nowhere, there wasn't a place in the world in which people weren't poor. Everywhere people were poor. Just, you know, there's a, a, a thin layer of rich people and everybody else is poor. And they could starve to death the next day. Well, that's still true in large parts of the world, unfortunately. It's certainly true in much of, of Africa uh, and in some places of Latin America and Asia. But it is becoming less and less through and hopefully, you know, if we don't screw up, you know, within a century, you know, every city in the world will be like Zurich and that would be wonderful. Uh, but the notion that that could happen and how to bring it about really ripened between 1750 and 1800 in a small number of European countries in Northern Italy, in France, in England, in the Netherlands, in Germany, and so on. And that is, I think, the key to a great deal of history that comes after. Yes. Great, uh, Professor. Um, I'm, I know that I'm taking you a lot of time. Just my second last question. <laughs> what are the key issues that economic historians should be focusing their research on, um, on today? Well, as I said, you know, the, the, the big issue remains, of course, the roots of the, of the uh, great uh, enrichment. But I would maybe phrase it uh, uh, maybe a, a little bit different today. And here is what I want to think about. Uh, we have, in the last 250 years, become much richer. And, uh, but we have come, become richer at a price. And, uh, and the reason that that happens is because technology in general you know, when you innovate, you're going into the unknown. You're going to a place that nobody's been before. And what happens is that some of it is good and some of it is bad. 
and you don't know in advance how bad the bad is going to be and how good the good is going to be. So the big example of that, and this is of course something that we will have to cope with more and more, is the burning of fossil fuels. So the industrial, one of the things that the industrial revolution did, it it basically brought to the fore the use of coal and a little bit after coal, we got oil and we got natural gas, but these are all fossil fuels that were used to great with great success in developing economies. And people built, burnt these things happily and they said, well, isn't this wonderful? There's lots of this stuff in the ground and we can burn it and we're going, you know, we're going to run machinery and we're going to be able to heat things and so on and so forth. And then, you know, it started dawning, dawning on, on us in the last 30 years that this had a tremendous cost. And which wasn't realized because the whole notion of, you know, uh, greenhouse gases wasn't really part of the scientific consensus until maybe 30, 40 years ago. And so it turns out that a lot of technology has these unexpected side effects. Um, one of them is environmental, as I said, you know, it's not just it, it's not just uh, global warming, it's also air pollution, for instance. You know, my understanding is there are towns today, I don't know how things are in Islamabad, but I, I, my understanding is that in places like Delhi, for instance, you know, air pollution is responsible for cutting people's life expectancy by five years. That's not, that's that's serious. And so there's a lot of environmental and, and uh, uh, consequences of economic growth. And there are the social ones, you know, growth of inequality. So maybe, in the economic growth means that everybody is getting richer, but some people get richer a lot faster than others, and that creates all kinds of social and political. So, what I think we should do in economic history uh, look at economic growth and try to assess its full consequences, not just sing a song of praise as I've been doing for the last hour, of course, but also point out that, you know, this thing had all kind of unexpected consequences and there are very few major technological breakthroughs that don't have some kind of negative social costs. I mean, you think about the invention of the automobile, for instance, okay, forget global warming, just the invention of the automobile. The automobile has been a wonderful liberating invention that gave, you know, even relatively poor people, you know, a chance to, you know, go wherever they wanted when they wanted. But we also know that the automobile has had a huge social cost and that it has in many ways destroyed urban life. In, 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 in most America, in most cities in the world, not just in, in Europe, everywhere. I mean, you try to drive in Cairo, you know, or in Calcutta, or in Tokyo, or in Tel Aviv, you know, I mean, it doesn't matter where you go. I mean, there's too many cars and, and, and they obviously aren't, you know, have caused major, uh, 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 major environmental and, and, and human uh, uh, costs to society. So I think we should be more aware of the, sort of the, 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 the full social costs of economic growth and maybe because we haven't taken all the costs. Um, the other issue which I am fascinated by, now you've got me going on this, and this is an issue that I have been teaching for many years and I don't think there's enough research done about this, but there is something very odd about humans, which I want to point out to you, and I don't have an answer, I'm just going to raise a question because I don't know the answer. But here is the question, 
Charles Darwin taught us that every species on this planet, when it has a, a, a favorable material environment in which it can thrive, okay, it will start reproducing, it will start increasing its numbers, right? And it will keep increasing its numbers until it hits some kind of ceiling in which it exhausts the food supply or something else happens, and then it reaches some kind of an equilibrium. But as long as the conditions, the material conditions around it are favorable, its numbers will increase, right? That's, you know, that's how every animal and every plant is being genetically programmed. This is known as super fecundity, okay? So, and so as long as the environment is favorable, your numbers will increase. This is sort of an, an, a commonplace observation. There's one exception to that rule, and that's us. Because for the last hundred years, we have been getting richer and richer and the way we responded to that is not having having fewer. And so today, in almost every country in the world, we are ex experiencing a sharp decline in the birth rate and in fertility rates. And the, the net consequence, of course, is that A, there will be a population growth slow down and by now it's predicted to sort of end world population is going to reach some peak in 2040 and then it will start declining not very rapidly but it will start declining so but not only that but we are getting older on average right we have fewer babies and we live longer so the average age of the population is growing this has all kind of interesting effects the issue is why is it that we don't behave like every other species on this planet in that regard. I mean, we did in the past. I mean, uh, uh, Reverend Malthus still pointed out that, you know, if you give people higher wages and you give them a better material environment, they will have bigger families. And everybody thought this was true. And this turned out to be one of the most egregious mistakes anybody's ever made, thinking you give people more money, you give them more to eat, you give them better housing, they will have more babies. No, they're having fewer babies is why do we behave like that? And uh, I have a long lecture about this. It will take two hours in which I suggest all kinds of mechanisms, uh, some of them more obvious than others. But this strikes me as an extremely interesting and important issue, which because it goes to the heart of where humanity is going. Professor, just last one thing. Uh, are, are some concluding remarks from your side? Oh man, <laughs> concluding, well, I, let me put it this way, okay? I, as, as I said, you know, I have built a career on using economics to teach history and using history uh, to teach uh, economics. And that's a field that we call sort of economic history. And the last, I would say 20 years have been incredibly exciting for it. And the field has been growing uh, very rapidly. And the main reason it's been growing, and this is obviously you know, delighting me, is that we have better technologies in working on data. And so when I was a graduate student in Dublin, <laughs> I would go to the computer center and run a regression that had 40 observations in it. And I would say, oh my God, 40 observations, that's a big, a big sample. I mean, I hope the computer doesn't explode, you know, it fails to invert that matrix, you know, because otherwise, you know, it, I can't interpret my coefficients and this, blah, blah, blah. And today, 
you know, my graduate students routinely are working with observations, half a million observations, two million observations. One of my colleagues has 30 million. I mean, our access to data is unbelievable. But it's not just that. It's just not only that we can process data, we can collect them, we assemble them because we have, you know, OCR, we can read documents through using machine learning in which we don't have to sit there and pour over thousands and thousands of tables. We have a machine that does this for us and puts these numbers into spreadsheets that we can analyze. And what that really means is that we can learn about the past we ever could, that this is incredibly, incredibly exciting. And, you know, it's, it's wonderful to see this because there were times when people told me, oh, economic history, you know, that's a field that's declining. All it is is just a sort of economic with bad data and so on and so forth. And it turns out to be that the field is, is expanding very rapidly. And a lot of people who are not trained as a... And you mentioned Asimoglu, I can mention many others. They're all reading history, they're all writing history, they care about history, they talk about history. Uh, uh, I can give you a list of, you know, 10 or 15 major economists uh, in the US and in England and elsewhere who are doing historical stuff. Everybody is interested in history today. And you know what? I'll tell you something more. I said, we are the only species that doesn't follow super fecundity. We are all, all also the only species on this planet who are interested in their own past. Think about that. No other species know anything about their past. We do. And this is what makes us people. This is what makes us human. Thanks a lot, Professor. Definitely, it's a very wonderful, wonderful talk. I shall definitely invite you for another talk exclusively on growth and the population growth. Today, this is a really a memorable day, a day for me as well. Because I <laughs> well, thank you so much. You're very, you're very kind of uh, you don't know, I read your first article about 20 years back when I started my career in economics. And from uh, till from that day, I uh, I remember that there will be one day that I will talk to Joel Mukherjee. And so, so thank you very much for all this. Uh, thank you, Air. Uh, we shall meet uh, in next week uh, with some other good topic. Uh, till then, bye-bye. Thank you. Well, thank you. And, and, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you. Thank you, Joel. Thank you. Thank All you. the best. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.